Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. It's time for a very special speech and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome David Mann to the stage. David Mann is a human rights lawyer and migrant agent and the executive director of the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre. He has worked in various capacities assisting refugees and asylum seekers for over 20 years. David is a highly experienced advocate with vast knowledge of the situation that refugees face in Australia. Today, David will fast forward to a moment in our country's future when we have to deliver an inevitable apology to refugees and asylum seekers for the conditions they were forced to endure in offshore detention camps that they are still forced to endure. As this conference falls during National Volunteer Week, We've invited some volunteers from Refugee Legal to come along today. There's 500 volunteers that work for this organisation. That says what a great country this is when people do care. I want to congratulate them. Okay, David, your time is now. I had imagined... I might be delivering this speech in different circumstances. The year is 2030. I thank you, Prime Minister, for deciding to issue an apology to refugees exiled to offshore detention on Nauru and Manus Island in Papua New Guinea by previous Australian governments. And I thank you for the opportunity to advise on what this apology should say. It is now some years since the last of these people was evacuated. In 2023, the last refugee was brought back from untold suffering to safety here. The uncomfortable truth which our nation must confront is that we had to rescue her, finally, from the suffering we sent her to. Over the last decade, the momentum of our times has reached the point where we have no choice but to say to those people who came seeking asylum how so sorry we are for the harm and the inhumanity inflicted on them. Now is the time for our nation to fully acknowledge, to fully acknowledge and reflect on the damage that was done in our name. Now is the time to write a new chapter in our nation's history. Prime Minister, I have prepared for you this outline of what should be said by way of an apology issued by you on behalf of our nation. The apology must be unreserved. It must be unconditional. It must start with some critical context. It will need to sketch the details of what occurred. The apology must first and foremost be made to those people who suffered directly at the hands of the policy. That is, the women, the men and children, the families who fled in fear and sought safety here. Who sought safety here, but were forcibly transferred to the Pacific nations of Nauru and PNG 
under the so-called offshore processing policies of successive Australian governments, backed by laws passed by the Australian Parliament. We need to acknowledge that our, parliament, that our parliaments made this inhumanity and injustice lawful. The Pacific Solution Policy was instituted twice. First, from 2001 to 2007, and then from 2012 to 2023. In total, 5,814 people were exiled. This number was minuscule compared to the scale of forced displacements. Many of these people had fled from extreme brutality and oppression in countries like Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, Sri Lanka, Somalia and Iran. This explains why the great majority of those people were judged to be refugees. Yet these vulnerable and innocent people were subsequently consigned to human warehousing offshore in deeply inhumane and degrading conditions, prison-like conditions, conditions of arbitrary and indefinite detention effectively funded and controlled by previous Australian governments. Prime Minister, these people know what they suffered. And so many of them, in so many ways, still bear the deep wounds and enduring scars of their horrific ordeal. But for each of them, and for the wider Australian population, many of whom may not be aware, it is important to remind the nation of what actually occurred. We must recall the sheer scale and nature of the horror and the cruelty. Prime Minister, you should, on behalf of the Australian Government, the Commonwealth Parliament and all Australians, unreservedly say sorry to those who suffered the pain, the indignity, the trauma, the brutality, the degradation, the destruction of lives and the scars of devastation this cruelty has left. It was and remains a deep attack on, a, on our most basic sense of humanity. We are so sorry. 7.5 decades ago, in 1954, we signed up to the Refugees Convention. In doing so, we made a sacrosanct promise to protect and to defend refugees, to welcome and embrace refugees, to uphold the inalienable rights of freedom and human dignity, to help, not harm. But that promise was betrayed by successive governments. Our parliamentary representatives enacted one of the harshest anti-asylum and most comprehensive anti-asylum seeker systems in the Western world. The terrible truth is that some of the world's most persecuted people were repelled by our Navy. They were turned back at sea or were exiled and imprisoned on Nauru and Manus for years on end. In spite of the sacrosanct promise that we made, the historical record reveals the immense and scandalous human costs of this policy. We spent billions of dollars to exile, incarcerate without end, and ultimately destroy vulnerable children, women and men, people we were and are 
morally and legally duty-bound to protect. We breathe betrayal into the words of our national anthem. For those who come across the seas, we have boundless plains to share. Evidence of the cruelty inflicted on asylum seekers held on Narua Manus is overwhelming. A swathe of reports from bodies such as the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International consistently concluded that the policy violated rights and caused untold harm to people held there. We know that women on their own, held on Nauru, were sent from the detention centre there to isolated bush camps where they were put at further risk of sexual abuse which is exactly what happened to them. Independent bodies such as the Australian Human Rights Commission and the Moss Inquiry confirmed widespread allegations of child abuse, sexual assault and rape in detention on Nauru. No one was spared. Children suffered from the extreme physical, emotional, psychological and developmental stress tantamount to child abuse. We know there were children who came to introduce themselves by their ID number, not their name. We know that there were children who stopped playing and going to school and felt such despair that they refused fluids and food. We know that there were children who spent their time Googling how to kill themselves. We know there were children who self-harmed we know that at least one child begged to die rather than remain in Nauru. We know that one child even tried to set herself on fire. These children were subjected to conditions so brutal that many simply withdrew from the world around them. Medical experts identified the outbreak of a rare psychiatric condition known as resignation syndrome. We acknowledge that for many, the damage wrought cannot be undone. It endures. For this, we are so sorry. The uncomfortable truth is that Australian governments locked themselves into policies of deterrence that prioritised the protection of borders at the expense of protecting people. Perversely, these conditions replicated the kind of inhumanity from which so many people had fled. Fundamental freedoms were crushed. We broke the bodies and spirit of many who had fled in fear and sought our help. Imran Muhammad was 18 years old when he fled from the atrocities being perpetrated by the Myanmar military against Rohingya people like him. He felt no choice but to leave his home, his parents, his brothers and sisters, his land, everything he was attached to. He wanted to be a human, not a refugee. He longed to be a citizen, not a stateless person. The journey by boat was terrifying. He was captive to the hands of smugglers and fleeing without knowing where he was or where he was going. Everything happened in the dark. He could not speak their language. And then, so much was taken from him. 
writing from his new home in Chicago in the United States uh, after six years of torment on Manus, having, in his words, emerged through the beauty and gift of writing which he learned on Manus, he wrote this. I thought I'd lost all hope when the Australian government forcibly moved me to Manus Island on October 29, 2013. For so long, my life was controlled. It was not mine. I was not allowed to live the way I wanted. I saw what I didn't want to see. I ate what I didn't want to eat. I wore clothes I didn't want to wear. I heard what I didn't want to hear. I slept when I didn't want to sleep. I was treated in a way I didn't want to be treated and I lived where I didn't want to live. The pressure I was under was enormous, enough to break me into a thousand pieces and strip me of the things that helped me feel like a human being. There was not a single moment for me to feel what I wanted to feel. It was like I was living for the rest of the world, but not for myself. This is one of the many thousands of harrowing stories, stories which demand an unreserved apology. The neglect was so severe that our government were forced to evacuate many people back to Australia for emergency treatment, but in many cases only under legal threat. Indeed, some had sought our protection and then lost their lives on our watch. Appalling and utterly avoidable medical neglect proved fatal. Hamid Karzai, a 25-year-old man in his prime, held on Manus Island, died from a leg infection which could and should have been prevented. Some became so broken, they took their own lives. Some were subject to additional brutality from those who were meant to protect them. A 23-year-old man, Reza Barati, was killed by this brutality. Prime Minister, the names of those who lost their lives must be spoken. Reza Barati, Syed Ibrahim Hussein, Hamid Karzai, Omid Masumali, Rakib Khan, Kamil Hussein, Faisal Ishak Ahmed, Hamed Shamshipur, Rajiv Rajindram, Jahangir, Salim Kwani, Faraboz Karami, Muhammad Sawa. To each of them and to their families and their communities, on behalf of the nation, we must say we are so sorry. Previous governments went to extraordinary lengths to hide the appalling abuse. The wall of secrecy was seemingly impenetrable. Media access was severely restricted and laws were passed under which doctors, nurses, 
and others working in the system faced imprisonment for disclosing the abuses. In spite of this, many still felt compelled to blow the whistle on what they had witnessed. Prime Minister, with this apology, you may wish to consider whether we are, as a nation, now ready to write into our official history, our official history, here, the words of Beirouz Bushani, a man, a writer, a refugee, who suffered brutality and bore witness to it through his prophetic writing while held for years on Manus Island. Here are some of the words, his words, published while held on Manus Island. Words that he has suggested. This issue must be understood as the annihilation of human beings, the incarceration of human beings within the history of modern Australia. It is a long history, a comprehensive history. It is intertwined with colonial history. This form of affliction inflicted on people in similarly vulnerable situations has always existed in the history of modern Australia. Pain and suffering systematically inflicted on defenceless and vulnerable bodies. People who are not recognised as humans, not recognised as embodying human dignity. People who are debased. People who are subject to discrimination. Australia is a developed country. Australia has invested significantly in the arts, in intellectual life, in cultivating culture. Australia is generally known for being a country of goodwill. But one aspect of the history of this country has always been associated with violence and affliction. Modern Australia must not always be interpreted in terms of successes, its beauty and its achievements. This is the reality. Manus and Nauru are part of Australia. These prisons have had a profound effect on Australia's political and cultural and culture and society. It is true that the current generation is not fully aware of this reality, but undoubtedly in the future, Australia will come to fully understand the consequences of this political strategy and its violent impact on the nation. A central part of Australia's history relates to its forgotten people. This writing that comes out of Manus is the unofficial history of Australia, a history that will never be authorised by the government. Prime Minister, we must now seek to answer why was this policy instituted? Why did it remain in place for so long? If we are to reduce the risk of such policies happening again, we must acknowledge and understand why it happened. We have grappled for decades with this question. We have struggled to understand how such inhumanity could possibly have occurred, how our nation came to be so cruel to people seeking asylum. Prime Minister, as you are aware, there is no simple answer. In fact, we are first struck with a paradox. There is also a deep humanitarian strain in our history. There is a driving generosity of spirit and welcome toward refugees, which lies deep in our nation's character. Since the Second World War, we have rescued 
and resettled over 800,000 people whose lives were in peril. During the Indo-Chinese refugee crisis of the 1970s and 1980s, we gave sanctuary to over 177,000 persecuted people. They were given the chance to rebuild often shattered lives. These and many other great grand humanitarian acts are among the golden threads of our nation's modern story. And we have benefited immeasurably from them. To those whom, to whom you apologise, they too have so profoundly enriched our nation. We are as a people so much richer, more vibrant and ultimately stronger for this part of our refugee history. In reality, it is central to who we are and who we will be, not just in social and cultural terms, but also economically. In truth, it's a crucial part of the life and the fabric of our nation. So how to reconcile the kindness with such cruelty? Scholars and commentators and the general populace alike have wrestled with this question. Prime Minister, it will be important to explain that there was an amalgam of factors which together wrought this devastating harm. Many have sought explanation in the deep, insoluble stain of racism of the so-called white Australia policy. But while it may have been a factor, it does not fully account for what happened. We know that the policy was instigated amidst a public atmosphere of fear and political hostility toward people seeking asylum by boat. And this brings us to events which unfolded in August and September 2001 in waters northwest of mainland Australia. Notoriously, 433 mainly Afghan people seeking asylum en route to Australia by boat were rescued by a Norwegian cargo vessel, the MV Tampa. The government refused the vessel and its people permission to enter Australia. These men who were mostly fleeing the Taliban's violence and cruelty and tyranny were transferred by Australian troops to a naval vessel and then to Nauru. We were told that they were not people with problems, but people who were a problem. They were turned into people not who were threatened, but who posed a threat. They were turned into people who had not fled from terror, but who are alleged terrorists. A small-scale humanitarian emergency was morphed into a national military crisis. Political leaders perpetuated toxic myths designed to demonise and dehumanise innocent people desperately seeking our help. They were accused of jumping queues which did not exist. They were accused of acting illegally when seeking asylum is a right, not a crime. They were, they were even falsely accused of casting their children overboard into the ocean. And when hopelessness and despair led some to self-harm, they were accused of moral blackmail. Prime Minister, I propose the following words. We are so sorry we now acknowledge that you were people with problems and not people who were a problem. We could have and should have helped you, not harmed you. We are so sorry. 
The Tampa crisis also turned asylum policy into a deeply politicised issue for the nation. An era of bipartisanship in which our nation laid out the welcome mat for refugees was shunned and destroyed. The treatment of people seeking asylum became a political football. It took centre stage in the arena of political opportunism. What ensued, what ensued was an almost interminable jousting over who could be harsher toward vulnerable people seeking our help. The door to dialogue about a more humane policy was slammed shut. Deterrence drove the policy approach. Deterrence of people seeking asylum by boat. Stop the boats became a common political war cry. The political logic underpinning the policy was inherently brutal. The more painful the penalty, the more effective the policy. It suddenly became acceptable to expel a small child to Nauru to inevitable abuse, inevitable abuse, in order to deter others from coming. Refugees became human shields. Conscious, calculated cruelty became not only justified but necessary, purportedly in the name of stopping the boats, protecting our borders, breaking the business models of people smugglers, or even saving lives at sea. The revival of the Pacific Solution policy in 2012 was partly justified by humanitarian concerns that something needed to be done about the tragic loss of lives at sea. Some were no doubt motivated by genuine concern. From others, it appeared disingenuous particularly from those with no history of such humanitarian impulse. Many profess to be motivated by saving lives at sea while promoting a system which destroyed lives on land. As the camps on Nauru and Manus Island reopened, crocodile tears flooded the floors of Parliament. The question which arose then was, did the unnecessary and inevitable harm justify the means. And we, as a nation, answered wrongly. And we are so sorry. The ethical rock on which our nation's approach must be constructed is the conviction that deliberate cruelty is an unjustifiable abuse of human dignity of people whom we are obliged to protect. And the ancient dictum which should guide our nation's approach that the true measure of a society can be found in how it treats its most vulnerable members. Prime Minister, in searching for reasons, some have delved deeper into social and political culture in our nation. Some, like Robert Mann, have identified a deeply entrenched culture of control in immigration, in, in Australian immigration. The objective there became that not a single boat, not a single boat should arrive at our shores, a sentiment epitomised by the haunting words of the then Prime Minister. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. From this, we saw the rapid expansion of the detention system, devoid of regard for the purpose and the people ensnared in it. Even with no boats arriving for years due to the militarised deterrence measures, people were still consigned 
to slow motion destruction offshore for years. This was aided and abetted by an extreme form of groupthink in which not a crack of light, not a crack of light could let, be let into the edifice. Institutional irrationality and paranoia prevailed. Not a single exception, not a single act of compassion, not one, not one sick child freed could be allowed lest a flotilla of boats converge in our country and the entire system face collapse. That was the thinking. And so the heart of the nation hardened. Barbaric acts became banal and normalised in the bureaucracy. We lost the ability to see how inhumane our government and political system could be to people seeking our help. In the face of this state-sanctioned evil, the nation did not flinch. Our nation lost its way. We are so sorry for breaking the bodies, the minds, the spirits of those who believed they would find freedom and sanctuary with us. Prime Minister, it will be very important to acknowledge that not all, not all of the nation was silent about the injustice. We know that many people across the nation, from all walks of life and from all corners of the country, from cities from, to suburbs to, to regions to rural areas, staunchly opposed the inhumanity. Prime Minister, many of those who suffered have told us how much this support meant to them. A sense of solidarity, of friendship, a connection and respect for people's basic humanity. And Prime Minister, I again return to the words of Imran Muhammad, the Rohingya refugee, whose words capture this. The world would have known nothing of us without the tireless work of lawyers, journalists and advocates in Australia. It would have been lost in a sea of evil without the generosity and kindness and pure love and care we received from our Australian supporters. Prime Minister, you will also need to acknowledge the unceasing collective efforts of those who sought to change the policy approach. Here in offshore, doctors and nurses rendered emergency care. Lawyers broke the barriers of access and challenged injustices in the courts. Human rights advocates and community activists scaled the walls of secrecy shone a light on the abuses and called for change. And they gave people a face and a voice. The United Nations and other expert bodies investigated rights violations. They reported on them. Journalists exposed the hidden abuses. Religious leaders made calls to our moral compass. And school kids, mums and dads and grandmothers sent letters to men on Manus. And they sent toys to kids on Nauru and took to the streets to call for an end to the inhumanity. Whatever mandate was claimed at the time by politicians for stopping the boats, there was never a mandate to mistreat people in this way. But despite these efforts, the uncomfortable truth is that the policy persisted for far, far too long. There was a failure to persuade the public of credible alternatives and of the need for change. It would be wrong to criticise those who tried to stop the policy, but for many years it persisted and we must look at why. Prime Minister, we need to have an honest and open conversation, a national dialogue.
First, we will need to acknowledge that the underlying reasons which led to the Pacific solution still linger. Let's not deny or delude ourselves that this could not happen again, given the amalgam of factors which led to it. They do lurk and linger. The global pushback of people fleeing persecution now only escalates in 2030. A fearsome gale blows in the direction of conservatism, ultranationalism, nativism, anti-immigration and populist xenophobia and racism. In 2020, 70 million people were forced from their homes. Now, in 2030, it has reached 100 million. In the face of one of history's greatest eras of forced displacement and humanitarian need, and amidst the ravages of climate change with a proliferation of fires and floods and droughts and food shortages of famine and entire nations disappearing, many countries have responded by bolstering more borders, erecting more fences and building more walls to shut more desperate people out. How do we ensure that we don't resort to a similar response in the future? What can we do to mitigate the factors which threaten a rare occurrence? This apology must come with a solemn pledge to the nation to learn from the lessons of the past so that we avoid ever venturing back down that dark path again. To the people who have suffered so much, you should say sorry. We cannot give back what we took from you. We cannot undo what was done to you. We can and will offer compensation. The details will soon be spelt out. Yet, we will do so knowing full well that it cannot remedy the harm and it cannot restore the lost years. But we can, as a nation, take action to ensure that for other people seeking asylum, other people seeking protection, it does not happen again. This new chapter in our history must be written and it is incumbent upon a nation that believes it can contribute in positive ways to the plight of refugees to define how this is to be achieved. Immigration policy is immensely complex and challenging and there is no magic solution. But going forward, Australia can and must develop a plan for refugees which has human dignity and humanitarian outcomes at its heart. It must not default to deterrence and detention strategy. Instead, it must treat asylum seekers in accordance with our obligations under the Refugees Convention. And it must focus on the plight of people seeking asylum in the Asia-Pacific region, in our region, not on how to stop them getting to Australia, but on the root causes of why they're trying to get here in the first place. We must work with other countries to expand protection offered to people in need. It is no longer an option, but a necessity. Our nation, in partnership with its regional neighbours, must focus on building a cooperative framework for protection in the Asia-Pacific region for millions fleeing from war and persecution. The billions previously spent on the misery of offshore processing should instead be invested in working with countries hosting refugees, such as Malaysia and Indonesia, to share the responsibility for rescuing, 
fairly processing, humanely hosting and resettling of refugees. But for far too long, our nation has shirked its responsibilities and deflected them onto others. This must end. We must now shoulder our fair share of responsibility and we must start by taking action to expand our own generosity by committing to a significant lift in our annual intake of refugee resettlement. It is only by committing to such concrete actions than we, that we can make real for refugees who suffered the profound depths of our apology to them. Together, we must expand our sphere of kindness. What's at stake is not only how we treat the vulnerable, but what we teach our children in doing so. We need to rediscover a place in our hearts and minds, a place in playgrounds across our country, so that our nieces and our nephews, our sons and daughters, are able to share these playgrounds with asylum seeker children, instead of ever witnessing them being sent to prison-like conditions again. The real challenge facing our nation is not the next boat arrival. The real challenge is how our country can find its way back on the treatment of refugees so that we honour our commitments under law, so that we honour the values of human decency which underpin them, and so that we honour the wellbeing of one another as fellow human beings of equal and precious worth. We are so sorry we dishonoured your humanity. We promise never to go down this dark path again. And we promise to uphold in word, in spirit and in action the fundamental principles of humanity for those who may in future seek our protection. We will embrace this future with the unflinching conviction that it is also fundamental to the nation that we want to live in, dream of and defend. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.